Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. SEC Media Days. All right, we did talk about that yesterday. In fact, we've been talking about it this week. SEC Media Days did kick off on Monday with Brian Kelly getting the Jug Band back together. It's a good thing, right? He also explained his allegedly evolving Boston slash Midwestern slash Louisiana accent, even though he sounded to me exactly the way he has always sounded, except for that one time, except for that one time that he will never, ever live down because the internet will never, ever forget. Family. All right, so that was BK and the band. I love that. My, my man is good. Nobody's better on a jug. Anyway, he can't do the entire week. Well, he could. I wish he would. Except yesterday, it was the Nictator's turn to step to the podium. And surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, motherfucker. Old red ass is still all red assed about NIL. But at least this time, he did not drop a scud on one of his former assistants and alleged pals. We may never, ever forget BK's Jug Band Family Act, but we will also never, ever forget Red Ass v. Thin Skin, a.k.a. the time when Nick Saban just casually dropped, just casually dropped the Texas A&M quote, bought every player on the team. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. We didn't buy one player. How about that? That actually is aging very well. We didn't do that. They bought every player. That, of course, caused Thin Skin Jimbo to hit the big red button and choose nuclear escalation by calling the dictator, quote, a narcissist who, quote, thinks he's God. Some people think they're God. And that people should, quote, go dig into his past. Go dig into his past. And that he and Saban's relationship is, quote, done. Now I'm done. I mean, arguably the best coaching feud in the history of college sports. It happened to include maybe the greatest coach in the history of college sports. Needless to say, there was not a lot that the dictator could do yesterday to top any of that. I mean, how are you going to top any of that, right? But, of course, he did still manage to make a bunch of headlines because, once again, red ass is still all red assed about NIL for some reason, even though he seems to benefit more than anybody from it. Like college football right now, more than ever before, is about the haves and the have-nots. Absolutely nobody has more than the Crimson Tide. And Saban is the first to admit that. So I'm just trying to figure out exactly... What the red ass is so red assed about? We're one of the halves, but everybody in college football cannot do these things relative to uh, how they raise money in a collective or whatever and how they distribute money to players. So those are the concerns that I have in terms of, you know, how do we place guidelines around this so that we can maintain a competitive balance? There, there is no competitive sport anywhere that doesn't have guidelines on how they maintain some kind of competitive balance. Oh, and wait a minute. Hold up. Did he just say competitive balance? 
Is he going on about competitive balance? Seriously, Saban is trying to tell us that he's bent and concerned about competitive balance? Like, the dude most responsible for the lack of competitive balance in college football is trying to lecture all of us about his concern for competitive balance. The guy most mostly responsible for competitive imbalance is concerned about the lack of competitive balance. Now, that's rich. That is rich as hell. Make that make sense. You know, like, I hear what he's saying. I hear what he's saying. I just need to hear it from absolutely anybody except him. Because he also added this yesterday, quote, Name, image, and likeness is not an issue for us at Alabama. And our players, I think, did better than anybody in the country last year. What Again, what? What are we talking about here? It's a concern or it's not a concern? It's a concern for the rest of you. We're killing it. I'm not concerned for me, but I'm concerned about everybody else. You are? Case in point. This dude's quarterback showed up to media days yesterday in $1,100 sneakers. He's going on about the competitive imbalance, yet his quarterback is rocking $1,100 sneaks. I'm not making this up. Reigning Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young rolled in rocking Christian Louboutin. Louboutin sneakers. They retail at a minimum of $1,095. But at the same time, his head coach is pushing back against the competitive imbalances in the sport. That's a hell of a look, yo. It's just not right. It's not right what's going on here. Look at my quarterback over there with his $1,100 sneaks. But there's a lot of imbalance here that we have to address. What the hell are you talking about? It sounds like Red Ass was talking out his ass all day yesterday. You know, like when he addressed one of the Tide's biggest offseason concerns, their offensive line rebuild. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is the offensive line rebuild that we need to do. And I'm, I'm excited about the coach that we have at that position. You know, Coach Woodruff has done a really good job with the players and relationship building and fundamental progress. Uh, what? Yeah, that sounds great and all, except the man's name is not Wolf Ford. Or it is Wolford. It's not Woodruff, it's Wolford. Coach Woodruff. Eric Wolford. Coach Woodruff. It's not Coach Woodruff. Coach Woodruff. It's Eric Wolford. Coach Woodruff. The dictator actually poached this dude from Kentucky, causing this whole thing in Lex Vegas, and yet he couldn't even get the guy's name right. Poached this Woodruff. dude, causing this whole thing in Lex Vegas, and then mispronounced his name. Coach yeah, I don't know, Woodruff. Nick. Maybe you should spend more time learning the names of your coaches and less time complaining about the competitive balance issue when we all know it's actually an enormous advantage for your program. Competitive balance. So like I said, Red Ass did not start a new war with thin skin yesterday, nor did he upstage the jug band either. But he still managed to make headlines with some insufferable nonsense. And all that's left now is Thin Skin Jim to take his turn at the bat. Jimbo. That will close the entire week on Thursday. And personally, I can't wait for that. 
Like, I would have rather have seen BK's Jug Band as the headliner of SEC Media Days. Except Jimbo in the cleanup spot is not the worst thing ever. You know what it's like? It's like calling into the last segment of the Smack Off. You get the advantage of crackback opportunities on the rest of the field. So, Jimbo, do not waste that opportunity. Do not let us down. You're all teed up now. Like, we want Iafrady, not Rick and Buffalo. I want to hear some more straight freaking fire on Thursday. Love it every single time. I love that sound. Always pumps me up. That is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the best. It gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big business. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Listen, scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I know this. I've done this myself with this show and my podcast and my side hustles. Shopify helps with all of that. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Rome, all lowercase, and get a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Once again, go to shopify.com slash R-O-M-E right now, shopify.com slash Rome. We are joined by Clark Lee. Clark, it is so good to have you back. How are you? Oh, Jim, good to be with you, man. I, I appreciate the introduction. You got my confidence up a little bit, man. That's yeah. great. You earned it all. I appreciate having you back. It's great to have you, Clark. <laughs> so let me ask you this. We're less than 40 days away from you kicking off in Hawaii, which means you're over 18 months into this thing. You've been through a full regular season and a recruiting cycle. So how would you describe the mood and the vibe around your program right now? Well, we're having fun. I mean, it's it's a high energy operation. The the um, yeah, I think there's just a, I want to say a comfort level in a good way. I mean, I, we're obviously in the business of pushing discomfort every day, but I think the, the the players, the staff understand the routine, understand the substance behind why we do what we do. They understand how we do what we do, and so you just kind of um, we we just have a DNA. We have an identity. We have a pulse, and we're trying to get that heartbeat to echo as loud as we possibly can, uh, but we're excited. Um, and I think anytime you're, you're dealing with excitement, there's an element of the unknown, you know, we're still, you know, we're still early in this build, but, um, we're enjoying it and, uh, enthusiastic about it. And, and, um, so we're having fun. I think there's so much in that response that I really liked that I want to ask you about. I love that line about we're in the business of pushing discomfort. I understand that. But let me ask you this. You mentioned identity and DNA. We have a certain identity and a certain DNA. What is the identity and the DNA that you're trying to create? Well, there's a, there's a, um, you know, I, I guess just to, just to share with you kind of the, the premise of our program, you know, we talk about the development of the individuals, the Vanderbilt football warriors. So we, you know, we, we feel like each each person, not just player, I mean, staff member too, 
is responsible for for their holistic development. And when we talk about that, it's because I think that's a word too that needs some defining at times. But for us, that's that's mind, body, spirit, skill, and bond. So we think about what what a warrior entails and what being a warrior entails, and we think strength in those five areas: mental, the physical the spirit because life is suffering, but we, we can choose to be enthusiastic and have, and find joy in the shared suffering team, the skill or the development of the, um, the, the, the fundamental techniques, the mastery necessary to, to perform at a high level in the SEC. And then the bond, we, you know, interconnections, the skill too. And so that, that, that kind of encapsulates the individual development within the program, and then we, we're bound by five covenants, and those five covenants are true brotherhood, pride in everything we do, earn it every day, player-to-player accountability, and recycle positive energy. Those are kind of the two big building blocks of our program, and so the vision of the program is that you have like 150 people, players and staff alike, standing shoulder-to-shoulder, faces painted, loincloths, spears forward, ready to ruthlessly charge the opponent. So we're looking at a, a culture here, an environment where we're bound together at the cellular level. We're totally aligned and purposeful in what we do, and we're going to fight for every inch in front of us um, to, to represent this program with pride. And that kind of um, that—that's the identity. Now, listen, that's that's big picture, and, and we're, we're turning towards that. But uh, we find energy every day that we we feel like we're. That, that, that's crystallizing internally. Hey, Clark, let me ask you something. Do you have any need whatsoever for a 57-year-old dude with no eligibility and no game whatsoever? Sign me up, coach. <laughs> Put me in there. I want in. Absolutely, I want part man. of this. I, I, I could not tell you how much I appreciate what I just heard, the premise of the program. And, and I know you want to get 1% better every single day. I know this is not a quick turnaround. But to establish that identity, that DNA, the, the five covenants, all of that, how long should that take to fully take hold whereby the players have ownership and they can actually teach it to each other and hand it down to those who come after them? Well, that, what you just said is the actual challenge. So we want to be a player-run program. I. Those covenants were not mine. I didn't come in with those. And, and, and kind of intentionally, I think when I first got here, the messaging I used was really carryover for the messaging that I used with our defense at Notre Dame. And it was, it was stuff that it's all good. It's all foundational and, and fundamental. I mean, it was good. But I wanted to give some room for this program to develop independent of anything else I'd ever been a part of because I think we have a unique challenge here. And, uh, and it needed to be organic to Vanderbilt. So – um, those after about two months of messaging a year ago, and we were in a, I'm excuse me, like 18 months ago, we were in a really, I mean, it was a, it was a, and we talked about this last year, but it was a really tough starting point. A lot of psychological trauma and scar tissue, a lack of connection, connection, a lot of apathy towards the value of the program. I'm, I'm talking internally, right? We, we know the external challenges, but we have to be totally focused on, you know, the internal value we hold for being a part of this. So after about two months of messaging, we, we had a kind of a, an, an ass kicking workout in the stadium. And uh, at the end of that, we went through an exercise and um, essentially it was, we split the team up into teams. Um, each team designated a, a spokesman. We went through and, and decided um, that they had to come up with three things that player driven, they were willing to let go of um, uh, from our past that had held us back. So again, this is, this is in my first two months as head coach. Uh, and then we went, uh, once we, once we went through that exercise, they, they had a, we had a little bonfire out there. They burned it, released it to the past. We then came up with three things from each group that 
the players were committed to do to change moving forward. Um, that gave us 24. The, that the nominated spokesman took them in the locker room. 24 became five. That became our five covenants. And so I wanted it to be something that the players had ownership from in the inception because it would be easier for me to hold them to account they developed them. And it just so happened the messaging had been, you know, uh, I guess consistent enough to where, you know, I was pleased with the five that they came up with. I thought it pretty well identified where we were. And so back to your question, you know, I think to do this as a player run operation, you're going to have to be patient early. You're going to have to really be um, into teaching and mentoring. Um, But I think that's how I, you know, built my career. And so, um, you know, we're staying disciplined on that course, and um, it's every day. It's every day working to um, hand the keys over to the players to, to, to have them recognize the power they hold in the experience that they have here. And that's, that's kind of the ultimate goal of the program. And uh, we, are, we are on course, and, you know, on course means that uh, heading into year two, I feel like, we really have something here of value that we're going to be fighting for this fall. That doesn't guarantee us anything, but um, it's going to be exciting and fun to be a part of. Clark Lee is my guest. Seems to me it's easier to hold them accountable to the five covenants when it's their five and not five that you gave them. They came up with the five themselves. You made headlines yesterday when you said at the media days that, quote, we know in time that Vanderbilt football will be the best program in the country, end of quote. I want to ask you, is it something that you say because it's important to have a bold vision, or is it something that you say because you really expect that to happen? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I said the same thing a year ago um, in, in my first response after my opening statement, but I, I just don't – I guess, I, it, you know, to not have that belief in the forefront of our mission just doesn't compute with me. I mean, I didn't take this job – to, um, you know, like to, to work it to some level of mediocrity. Like I took this job because I believe in Vanderbilt. I believe in the, the, uh, the long-term substance-driven product we have here that just hasn't been given, um, haven't, hasn't had the investment behind it. I think that's both a, that's a financial investment, that's a leadership investment, but that's an emotional investment too. And so I, I said that yesterday because that's my belief. Once you're totally committed to something, the universe will align with you. And I'm totally committed to driving this program to the very top of college football. And I understand how people that don't know me or people that don't know kind of what motivates me or who I am, they might look at that and feel some kind of way about it. But I'm just speaking the language I know. And part of my core beliefs is you, you speak into existence the things that lie within you. And it is my mission to get this program um, to the very tip top because what we offer – I believe can be um, altering in so many ways for young people, but I think it also can have impacts on a broader level um, again, in our communities across the country and, and in a time where we need leadership, what, what better place to drive leadership than Vanderbilt university football. Clark Lee joining me. So one last thought as other coaches have said, and you've done a really good job of laying this out and what the premise is, what the approach is, what the philosophy is, but the SEC is a conference that can overwhelm almost anybody, even the best of the best. How do you go about avoiding that? Well, I, I think it's you know it's it's having uh, in a, a very disciplined um, approach where your focus is solely on uh, your own team. You know, we have to develop this team 
if the, if the goal is to drive this team to the top of college football, then it doesn't matter who we're going to play against. Over time, we're going to have to play against everybody. So why don't we focus on what we need to do today to, to, uh, to like you said earlier, to be 1% better, to make sure each day we're, 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 we're accumulating gains. And over time, you unlock levels. And so right now in, in our year two, team two, you know, we, we have a ceiling. We need to push for that ceiling and try to break through. But in doing that, in, in the progress shown in doing that, we're going to have the capacity as a program to unlock another level. And so it's a deliberate approach that over time, I believe, you know, um, will get us to where we want to go. But I, I don't, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the SEC so much as we think about, like, how do we just build the best Vanderbilt football team we can possibly build? How do we ensure that when they line up on Saturdays, again, they're, they're competing with purpose for every blade of grass on the field? How do we make sure that, you know, they're, they're insulating themselves from external opinion and just focusing on the love that they have for one another and what they're fighting for? They're, they're drawing value from their experience every day. You know, those are the things to me that make a great program. And um, growth is incremental, and it's, it's, it doesn't happen nearly as quickly as any of us wanted to. I just have to be tough enough and disciplined enough to, uh, to keep the course set and, uh, and not deviate. I love the message. I love the philosophy. I love the premise of the entire program, and I love that conversation. He's the head football coach at Vanderbilt. He's entering his second season as Vandy head coach and, again, did serve as Notre Dame's defense coordinator from 2018 to 2020. Clark, sincerely, I appreciate the relationship and that conversation. I always look forward to it. It never disappoints, and I appreciate the energy very much. Thanks so much for coming back on. Hey, hey props to you real quick, the reinvention project, Jim. I I was at dinner with Tim Corbin, my good friend and baseball coach. You're obviously a legend uh, a couple weeks ago, and he recommended it to me. And, and uh, so a little shout-out to you there. We, I've enjoyed that. He's enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's making a difference, so keep it up. All right, so to me, in terms of the All-Star game, the easy thing, the convenient thing would be for me to come in here and crush the All-Star game. You know, bash the uniforms, bash the in-game interviews, bash, bash the commissioner for being the commissioner. But you know me, I'm not here to hate. I feel great. Middle of summer, had some time off. I am not a hater. If you know me, you know I am always a glass half full guy. And even though the league is jacking with one of the best traditions in the game by having players wear their own uniforms, and even though the commissioner does not seem to understand that that is a great tradition, I'm not going to bash them for that. Because for SoCal... Last night's All-Star game really could not have gone any better. You had Clayton Kershaw on the mound at Dodger Stadium and Shohei Otani leading off. What's better than that? Only Otani calling his shot before he digs in. First pitch, first swing. That's it. That sounds like fun. Thank you. Good luck. I mean, the only thing better than that is him then going out and backing it up. Off we go. First pitch swinging. Flair of a base hit into center. Otani even told him through Tom Verducci, first pitch swing. And he did, and he broke his bat, but he's got a base hit. So pretty cool. And the only thing cooler than Otani leading off with a single would have been Otani leading off with a bomb. And then somehow, some way, Kershaw actually gets revenge. Otani aboard with a leadoff hit. Kershaw to judge. After a toss over. Kershaw erases Otani. I'm not sure what's more bizarre. 
a guy actually throwing over to first base in an all-star game or it actually working? And the fact that Otani was laughing as he was going back to the bag because he knew he was cooked. <laughs> actually pretty cool. So is the fact that Kershaw was starting. Yeah, I know. Here comes Dodger Jim. Listen, you can say there are NL pitchers with better numbers in the first half, and you'd be right. One of them. like a homer. Yeah, I know. Dodger Jim. Dodger Jim married to Dodger Jano and were a family of Dodger homers. Yeah, I know. I know. No, you're right. There are other pitchers with better numbers. Hell, he's got a teammate with better numbers. But nobody other than Clayton Kershaw should have been starting the All-Star game in Dodger Stadium. And it's not like he's some charity case. He's been damn good in the first half. And seeing anybody other than Kershaw on the bump in the top of the first last night would have been a damn shame, honestly. Just like it would have been a damn shame if Giancarlo Stanton did not do what he did in the fourth inning. Stanton and, and Judge have stayed healthy in the numbers together, putting up 50-some-plus home runs. That ball is hammered to left center field. Goodbye. Two-run shot. Tie game. Right up to where he used to sit as a kid coming to games here at Dodger Stadium. That's the thing, right? You hit a shot like that in the All-Star game in the stadium where you used to go to when you were a kid. You do something like that, and I've got no choice. Even feeling the way I do right now, coming off that break, I really have no choice but to break out the butter knife. Panorama City! Tahunga! Verdugo Hills! Sherman Oaks! Van Nuys! Encino! Calabasas! Woodland Hills! West Hills! Porter Ranch, North Hollywood, Studio Bleeping City, Selmar, can you hear me? Granada Hills, do the phones not work anymore there? Anybody in Chatsworth besides you adult film stars? Valencia, react to me. Anybody smashing pitchers of beer at the Sagebrush Cantina? Northridge, hit me up. What up to all my friends at Brent's Deli? Ventura Boulevard. All of it. I'm always afraid my face or my voice will get stuck doing that. If the commissioner was scripting it, he could not have scripted a better moment than the kid from Notre Dame High School, the kid who used to go to games and sit in the left field stands, hit one into the left field stands. In terms of all-star moments, I want to say that was right up there with Chan Ho Park putting one on a tee for ancient Cal Ripken in his final all-star game. The Iron Man squaring up a Chan Ho Park heater for a home run in his final All-Star game. I'm not saying that Tony Gonsolin was in there to give up gopher balls. Far from it. I know some of you want to say that. Some of you want to go on and on about how he dragged his gas can out there. Listen, no way a Dodger pitcher is looking to come into the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium and hand out suvies. It's just that he made two really bad pitches to two really bad dudes 
who will punish really bad pitches because the Stanton homer had barely landed before Byron Buxton launched into this one. Byron Buxton tattoos this ball to left field, and this one is out of here. Back-to-back home runs for the American League. And that National League lead came and went in a hurry. Nothing better than a pitcher not even bother, not, not even bothering to turn around to look. He knew. That's what happens when you throw it at a guy, when you throw it at a guy's eye level, and he turns it around 900 feet, there is no need to look. And then after that, most of the action was pretty much over for the night. The rest of the game was filled with guys being mic'd up. And if we're being honest, some of it worked and some of it did not. Like, I don't fault anybody for trying the in-game mic thing. Let's be real. If you're going to do that, just keep that mic on Jay's pitcher, Alec Manoa, at all times. Mic him up. Turn it up to 11 because this dude brings it. Check out my man, mic'd up, on the mound, and talking junk. Here we go. There's one. Here we go. There's two. He caught it. That is awesome. Here we go. There's one. Here we go. There's two. I mean, that is awesome. There's one. What's better than a pitcher counting his strikeouts out loud right in the middle of a game? And it only got better when he went looking for that third out. By you. Here we go. Yeah, baby. Front here. Don't flinch. 95 mile per hour heat on the inside. Quote, by you. By you. 94 with movement. Quote, don't flinch. Don't flinch. That's good stuff. He even found time to call John Smoltz, quote, sexy. At one point in the inning. But let's be real. Alec Manoa was the sexy one last night. This dude brought it. You want to save baseball. You want to fix baseball. That's how you fix baseball. Forget the funky jerseys. Or the guys rocking nicknames on their shirts for a weekend. Or ghost runners on second in extra innings. Or pitch clocks. Or any of that other crap that MLB has thrown against the wall. You want to fix that game? Clone Alec Manoa. And then mic him all game long. More pitchers talking more junk in more games is how you fix the game. John, what do you got for him on one, two? Make this slider look like a strike on the outside corner and make it disappear off the corner. I'm thinking the slider, too, but I think if I execute a good heater up. Yeah? You've seen the sinker twice. Something that stays true. Might throw him off a little bit. I think we're going to go with that. Let's see what Kirk calls. <laughs> Right down the middle, but we'll take it. Three punches. <laughs> Let's go. Alec, congratulations. Woo! Thank you for doing this. This dude. Three punches. Let's go. Let's go. Alec, Isaac, Manoa, if you need him. And this sport definitely, desperately needs this guy. In fact, they need a lot of guys like this guy. Heat throwing, junk talking, punchy getting dudes with a ton of game and a ton of it that's the kind of guy the game has tried to crush for years because the moment anybody shows any personality the red asses go red ass and they try to stomp it out but you cannot stomp this out Three let's go congratulations thank you for that is so good it's actually awesome 
not only did he let you inside his head on how he was going to get that third strike, he executed it, and then he celebrated with three punchies. Let's go. That's your MVP right there. Love it every single time. I love that sound. Always pumps me up. That is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the best. It gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big business. So upstart startups and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Listen, scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I know this. I've done this myself with this show and my podcast and my side hustles. Shopify helps with all of that. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Rome, all lowercase, and get a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Once again, go to shopify.com slash R-O-M-E right now, shopify.com slash Rome. And the Lakers. Four NBA titles as an assistant coach. Sacramento is coming off a 30-52 and 52 season. We are joined by Mike Brown. Mike, it is great to have you back in the jungle. Nice to talk to you once again. How are you? How is life treating you, Mike? Jim, good, good to be here, man. Life is good. Uh, appreciate you having me back on. I can't ask for anything more right now. Maybe, maybe 65 wins next year. <laughs> Does that sound realistic? Does that sound like a pretty good number for you? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I guess it, if I could wish for something, maybe that. But, uh, no, I, I'm excited with the direction that we're going. Uh, our GM, Marty McNair, assistant GM, Wes Wilcox, they've done a fantastic job of putting this team together. Uh, I like the, the balance of the roster, have a lot of good uh, uh, young pieces, as well as, you know, an older vet in, in, in Harrison Barnes. It's one at a high level and can get some things done out on the floor. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting started. Uh, Mike Brown joining us. Mike, there's so much I want to talk to you about regarding that roster. But even before we get there, I want to be specific about when you were named head coach because it happened during the Memphis series, and it happened within hours of the news that Draymond Green's close friend had been shot and killed. And then after a few hours after that point, Steve Kerr tested positive, and then you stepped in as the Warriors head coach. I'm curious, what was that time period like for you, and how did you deal with all those emotions, keep it together, and then get a win? I, you know, I, I tell you what, people have asked me that. It, it was probably the most difficult time in my coaching career to juggle those things. Uh, it, it, the, the, the good part about it is this, is this was year 30 for me in the NBA, so I've been through a lot of uh, different experiences. Uh, it, it helped that uh, I think it was 2016, 2017, uh, Steve stepped away because of some health issues, and I had to coach 11 games in the playoffs. So uh, the familiarity of sitting in that seat during the playoffs, especially with the type of pressure uh, that you get during this time, uh, was there. 
And you know, you, you look at the guys that we had around, or that we had around, that we have around on this team. The vets that have been there, from Steph to Clay, obviously Draymond, especially Andre Iguodala, you know, and then Kevon Looney. Those guys have been there, done that. I have been in the, the, the fire with those guys too during during uh, tenuous times when it comes to a playoff run. Uh, and then the rest of the support staff. You know, a lot of the coaches were had been around for a while and. And obviously having Bob there and Bob Myers there uh, with us every day was was very beneficial for me. And so uh, with that support group around me, it was just a matter of me just trying to keep the engine running forward. Uh, But it it was an emotional time for me. It was up and down. But, again, that support staff, players, and and front office people as well as coaches kept me grounded and kept me – leading the team in the right direction. Sacramento Kings head coach Mike Brown joining us once again. So, Mike, obviously it's no secret that the Kings have not been to the postseason since 06. There have been 12 head coaches during that time. Some really good head coaches have not been able to lead Sacramento to the playoffs, but you're not running from that. Why is it something that you want to talk about, and then how do you go about changing that? You're 100% correct. It's, it's something that uh, – Myself and my staff want to want to embrace. We've already started taking on the challenge. We feel like, it, you know, uh, especially with with Vivek at the helm, and like I said, I mentioned uh, Monty and Wes. Uh, we feel like with the talent that we already have assembled, that the nucleus that's there, and the guys that we brought in, uh, getting some organization to this group and and challenging them, motivating them in the right direction, uh, is something that we feel we can do. They've already been really response, responsive to us. We've had a couple of mini camps that were voluntary. We had most of our guys show up. Everybody's looking forward to getting this thing started. Everybody's on the same page. And, again, with the talent of this nucleus, we feel like we can get over the hump. You add the arena, the practice facility, uh, the area, and the fans, and to me it's, it's an exciting challenge that we feel more than confident that we'll be able to get done. Mike Brown joining us. Mike, I've been in that facility, and I know about the area. I know about the fans. In fact, I was there back in the day, back in the day when the Kings were really good. (laughs) Sacramento, Mike, as you know, was a really imposing, tough, hostile barn to enter into. Could it ever be like that again? Like, if you allowed yourself to picture what it would be like to be back in the postseason and have that kind of atmosphere, can you rebuild and recreate it to that point? That's what we're striving to do striving to do you know the fans like i said since we've uh, gotten a job just walking around town we've gotten great responses that you know they're they're fired up they're ready to go i i think i i do believe that we can have that same chaotic crazy type of crowd that they had back in the day the only thing uh that that uh i'm not sure of is if they're going to allow the fans to bring the cowbells right they can allow the fans to bring the cowbells in Hey, with, with the energy that they've shown at least so far, not only during summer league, but like I said, walking around town and all that other stuff, we'll be good to go. It'd be a fun environment to be a part of. Oh, they're hungry. They want it. They want it very, very badly. Mike Brown joining us. Before you go, Mike, what about that nucleus? Let's talk quickly about a couple of the guys you have. You would coach De'Aaron Fox at Adidas Nations back in the day. What do you remember him about that point in his development, and what's his ceiling now? I, I, when I had him at an Adidas Nation event back in the day, I, I, did, I thought he was going to be a high-level defender just because of his quickness, 
his tenacity and, and his ability to get up and track the basketball. You know, when you talk about defense on our level, uh, most levels, it, it, it starts at the point, uh, the, the head of the snake, and that's at the point position. And so uh, we, we've already talked about it. We're going to challenge De'Aaron to, uh, to get back to what we felt he, what I felt he was good at on the defense end of the floor, which is getting into the ball, making it tough on our opponent's point guards, and seeing if everybody behind him can follow. And if that's the case, I think defensively we should take some, some, some huge leaps or jumps this year, which will be beneficial to us in the long run. But we all know about his quickness. He's one of the fastest guys from end to end. Uh, basketball, he was that way in high school. And, you know, getting out and running in transition, making sure the floor is spaced so he can get downhill, there's going to be something else that we're looking forward to. Tim getting done not only now, but he's always done that in the past. So, Excited about De'Aaron Fox. Mike Brown joining me. Mike, listen, anybody who knows anything about your background knows you're a great defensive coach, knows that you love defense. Not just that it's critical and you can't have success unless you do it, but you love it. How do I know that? Well, I know you, and I know what Draymond Green said recently. Draymond Green said, quote, that's good, because every time I talk to Mike about defense, the last couple of years, his head would start to sweat. It does start sweating, man. He loves it. End of quote. Such a great quote. What is it about defense and coaching defense that you love so much? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, anybody – I was a terrible player. So, so, so the one thing I know I can do is I can go out there, I can give effort, I can communicate, and I have the ability to trust my teammates. And so if you don't do those three things, you're going to have a chance to impact the game defensively. And if you look at the past champions, the last 20, 25 years, you know, obviously they're talented teams. But I, I would challenge anybody out there to go find an NBA champion in the last 25 years that was out of the top 15, if not top 10, uh, on the defensive side of the ball when it comes to ratings at the end of the year. So, uh, you know, laying that foundation, getting guys to buy in and believe that 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 can help you win at a high level because shots aren't always going to go in is something that I'm eager to do, and it gets me excited because I know how impactful it can be, uh, not just in a particular game, but on an organization long-term when you talk about building a winning culture. So one last thought on that, Mike, and I'll let you go. But I know you're looking ahead and not back, but I think an amazing example of that, at least from where I'm sitting, is Steph Curry. And from where I'm sitting, Mike, Steph Curry's coming off a year where I thought that he played the best defense of his entire career. As the lead assistant and defensive coordinator this past season, what did he show you over the course of the year in the way he played defense? And then what's it say about a Hall of Famer and the best pure shooter ever that at this juncture of his career, he's still willing to pay that price and grow defensively? You know, you hit it on the head. His preparation was off the charts. And when I, when I say preparation, his work in the weight room to get himself stronger so now he can switch on the bigger guards, the bigger small fours, was was phenomenal. Uh, he spent more time in that weight room during the season than anybody on our roster, and a lot of it was uh, so he can sit down and take the hit when he's guarding bigger guys. The next thing is just is mental preparation. You know, asking questions not not only of me uh, in one on one situations, but of other coaches when we're watching film during walkthroughs and all that other stuff. He was always in tune to what we were trying to do, 
for himself and the rest of the group. And then knowing that not only did he need to prepare right, but he using that to go out on the floor and take on the challenge and not shy or run away from any mismatch that he that may come across his table. So it, it, you said it. He, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, but he took his defense to another level. Ton of examples uh, uh, out there showing it. But more importantly, because of who he is, because he's our point guard, because he's the head of the snake, it really, in my opinion, got everybody else to fall in line. Mike, I have to ask this then. I mean, you've seen this 30 years in that league. You know what happens. Guys get there, and then all of a sudden they forget what got them there, and they don't pay the price because they feel like, all right, I arrived. This is my reward. Or they get that second contract, and they stop paying the price. How do you explain a guy who is a generational talent, one of the all-time greats, still grinding that hard, that late in his career? What kind of fuel is this guy running on? What's driving him? How do you explain that guy who has so much still being willing to pay that greater price? One, one of my biggest values uh, from not only in the past but going forward, I've talked to all of our, all of our current players on the Kings about it, is having a, a competitive spirit. Steph's competitive spirit is, is just off the charts. Uh, you know, if, if you have that or you could develop that, it, it will motivate you beyond anything any coach can tell you and your parents can tell you, your buddies can tell you. That competitive spirit is something that's going to drive you to be the best and not sometimes, not most of the time, but all the time until you're ready to give up or hang up your shoes. So uh, Steph has it. I, I believe a lot of our guys have it right now in the Kings, and I'm looking forward to helping them bring that out this year. Mike, you can get to the NBA, I think, I think, without it, if you have extreme talent. But if For you sure. get a, if you get a guy, though, right, who gets to the NBA who doesn't have it, can you teach it, or is it impossible to program that into a guy at that level? I, I think you can. Now, how high or how great that, 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 that competitive spirit will be is, you know, is the challenge. But I think you can help individuals uh, <clears throat> develop that, especially if you have other guys around around him that have that competitive spirit. And a lot of times that, that will get you over the hump in a tight ball game, a tight series against another good team. And so for me, again, it's, it's something that I value at a very high level, and we're going to impose it on every single one of our players going forward from this point on. Mike, I love seeing it. I love seeing you back with Sacramento. You and I, way, way back in the day when we were younger guys, we had come together. I'll never forget the night that I was in Cleveland for an appearance, and you were with the Cavaliers, and you and Danny Ferry and the team. I remember seeing you at a Morton Steakhouse. We had a great conversation. (laughs) You're always good to be with the Lakers when you're here in SoCal, so it's great to see you back where you belong with your own team in Sacramento, and I'm anxious to see how that goes. Mike, really good to have you back on the show, and I know we'll do it again soon. Congrats. Hey, Jim, anytime, man. You're my guy. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, Mike, very much. Let's go to Southeast Wisco, Chris. What's going on, Chris? Hey, Jim, I'm doing good. How about yourself, brother? Good, dude, good. Hey, man, welcome back from God's country. I just wanted to circle back on Coach Brian Kelly and the fact everybody is still hammering him over his fake Southern accent. I'm actually shocked that anybody following college football is surprised. I mean, come on, man. We are talking about BK. When he got that LSU gig, I expected the dude to go even harder. You know, grow a mullet, take a piping hot skillet, and press it against the back of his neck. Then hold his presser on a swamp boat, wearing a three-piece camel suit with a purple and yellow tie. 
on the table in front of him instead of a bottle of Gatorade, there'd be an LSU Tigers dip cup for him to spit into. Coach Kelly talking in a southern accent and saying family was predictable. He just tripled his salary, clones. And let me close with this. Should he win a chip or two down in Baton Rouge, the opportunities will be endless. Who knows? The Chelsea Soccer Club could offer him $12 million just to serve as motivational guru to the team. The next thing you know, he calls the show from across the pond saying, Hello, Jimmy. Screw the bloody jungle Twitter pussy. They're all a bunch of lazy, silly, fat bastards anyway. BK is a dude that is relentless in his pursuit of more coin. That will never end, Jim. Unwar, encouraging these Twitter hacks that can, quote, build their brand. It's like encouraging Ritt with a little more practice on his crappy driveway hoop that one day he could play in the Drew League. Lastly, Jim, and you know this, brother, it's not a family, but it sure is a reset of my dynasty clones. Get some. Yeah, I don't know that, Chris, actually. Let's go to Huntington Beach. Silk. What's up, bra? How's the summer? Oh, bro, it's, uh, it's pretty great, man. We got some major swell happening right now, bro. Even Blackies is breaking. It's unbelievable. Wow, dude. Awesome. So, um, shout out to all the new fakes. I heard there's a fake Reggie. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> fake Reggie is probably better than fake Silk as, uh, from performance to each guy. Um, I also thought last night that, uh, that Nestor guy and his battery mate with the Yankees were pretty funny. When Smoltz asked the catcher, hey, during a game – uh, how do you know, know when he's going to drop down and throw sidearm? And the catcher goes, I don't. That was pretty cool. Now listen, I got a Laker take, bro. I'm a lifelong Lakers fan. Um, unfortunately, the Lakers problem started with the, the struggle after Dr. Buss died. Um, we all love Jeannie Buss, but she's a weak governor. Um, she allows nepotism and a bunch of old cronies in there. And that made the Lakers ripe for a hostile takeover. And unfortunately, that's just what LeBron and Clutch Sports did. Um, they, they've turned this into a Clutch Sports AAU team. Uh, you know, former the Lakers used to sign superstars, Kobe, Shaq, um, Kareem, and they would come in as an individual and embrace the Laker culture and the Laker history. That's not LeBron's deal. He's about LeBron. He's about Clutch Sports. Even when Kobe had his one meltdown or he was – making videos in the parking lot at Fashion Island, he still came back into the fold. I put this completely on Rich Paul, on Maverick Carter, LeBron. I'll even give Adele some blame. They, the Lakers are not going to be uh, good while these guys are in control. Frank Vogel told LeBron stuff he didn't want to hear and AD stuff he didn't want to hear, and it got him to a championship. Then LeBron got him fired. Where have we heard that story before? Lakers crapped the bed last season. And if things go according to plan, they're going to crap the bed this season. And now we're talking Kyrie. Are you kidding me? That guy is a major cancer. He's a front office cancer. He's a locker room cancer. He's a city cancer. Uh, (laughs) This guy's a joke. He needs to spend more time reading why Galileo was put on house arrest and less time making idiotic statements, bro. I'm sticking by what's going on in Lakerland. And um, unfortunately, we're going to have to watch LeBron prioritize taking down a record by the greatest basketball player of all time 
one Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm pissed about it, Brad. But listen, I'll see you at the new A restaurant across from Javier's this weekend, Brad, Newport Coast. Talk to you later, Brad. My reaction to that is, it's a dynasty, bro! It's a dynasty, bro. Here is a guy, Andy McCullough is my guest. Andy, it's good to have you back. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Good. Really good, actually. So you've got a great piece up right now on The Athletic about Clayton Kershaw starting the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium last night. Let me ask you this. There are other National League pitchers with better numbers. Nobody disputes that. But nobody was going to argue with this guy starting the All-Star game. What do you think last night meant to Kershaw personally? Yeah, I mean, he was fairly open about how much it meant to him and how much he really wanted the assignment. I mean, there's been plenty of years in the past decade or so where he was pretty clearly the best you know pitcher in the National League at the, at the break, and, and he's never started the game before. And it had never been really a big issue for him because he's sort of always, you know, he's whatever, he's committed to winning, all that sort of stuff. He wanted to win a World Series. Um, but I think starting in Dodger Stadium, which is the place he's called his professional home for – 15 years now, knowing that this might be his last year in L.A., yeah, it was something that he really wanted to experience. And he said, you know, he was able to take a step off the mound, like, before the game started and, like, looked up and took in the crowd, which is not a thing he normally does. He was kind of enjoying himself out there, which is not a thing he normally does. And so, you know, I think he's only 34, but he, you know, he is kind of coming towards the end of his career, and I think he's doing more to take sort of stock of that, and this is just kind of part of it. So in terms of that, where do you think that leaves him? Like, do you have any kind of sense of how much longer he wants to pitch? I mean, when you say it might be his final year in Los Angeles, his final year in Los Angeles or his final year, or do you think he wants to continue to go longer? Well, I think for pretty much every year moving forward from this, there's there's going to be just three options at the end. He can come back to the Dodgers for a year, he might go to the Texas Rangers, which is his hometown team, and play for a year, or he might retire. And I think all three options are going to be on the table for every season moving forward. You know, so like they were, at, they were those were the three options heading into 2022. He wanted to come back and you know have another shot in LA because he didn't want to finish his time as a Dodger having hurt his elbow uh, as he did last October. So yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, in my conversations with him, like he's unsure and you know he has never given any indication that he's not going to, you know, he's, he's going to decide this at the end of the season. It sounds like, uh, which is obviously is right, but I think as of right now, he's enjoying competing, enjoying being healthy, and has another chance to win a World Series with the Dodgers. Andy McCullough joining us. All right, so one more thought about the Dodgers. In terms of them having a chance to win a World Series, they've dealt with injuries, a lot of injuries, but they've got that 10-game lead in the division. They've got the best record in the National League. They're three games back, just three games back of the Yankees, with the best record in baseball. In your opinion, how does this Dodger team compare to the ones that have come before it? It's, I mean, it's certainly up there, right? Like adding Freddie Freeman to the lineup, even losing Corey Seager. I mean, Freeman is just a, is a better hitter, and so the, the offense has a slight upgrade there. I mean, I think it's comparable to the 2017 team. I think it's comparable to the 2020 team. I think it's comparable to the 2019 team. Those are, you know, I, I mean, last year they won 106 games. They didn't even come in. There, there's been so many good Dodger clubs in the last few years. I mean, I think there's, there's still concerns about the bullpen. Um, there is, I think, some concern about the top end of the rotation, you know, without Walker Bueller. Um, that's one of the reasons they're going to be, you know, pretty keen on Luis Castillo and Frankie Montas in the next couple weeks. And, you know, I imagine we'll be talking about this gentleman shortly hereafter, but they're also going to be in the mix for Juan Soto, uh, which would just kind of supercharge their lineup in a way that would make them really, really formidable.
We were talking to Andy McCullough, so why don't we talk about that gentleman right now, Juan Soto. You uh, had a great take. You wrote, quote, Soto is the crown jewel of a capsizing franchise, end quote. I mean, to illustrate that point, the Nationals won the World Series just three years ago, and they have finished dead last in the division every year since. Exactly what happened to that organization? Well, I mean, and this is not to discredit the 2019 team, but that was not the best team in baseball in terms of, you know, record uh, in 2019. They happened to play great baseball in the postseason. They're an utterly deserving championship. It was a great thing for, you know, the city for a franchise that it, you know, had in several years before then been the best team and maybe not won it. Anyway, all that stipulated, right? Like, they uh, did not make great decisions in terms of which players to bring back. You know, the Steven Strasburg contract has been a total disaster. Um, the Patrick Corbin deal, you know, curdled pretty quickly. Um, you know, they kind of had to trade Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Um, they have not gotten great returns on some of their other free agent, you know, sort of acquisitions. And their farm system is not particularly great. So there's just, you know, it was, it was kind of the end of the line, that 2019 team in a lot of ways. You know, they had already lost Bryce Harper. They would lose Anthony Rendon in the free agency. You know, Ryan Zimmerman retired. And they just, you know, the, the drafting and development hasn't replaced those guys just yet. And so with Soto, you have basically a chance to replenish your farm system in a way that, you know, you, you doesn't come around ever. I mean, the, the reason that everyone compares this to the Herschel Walker trade, right, is that trades like this don't happen in baseball. So you have to go back, you know, 30 years to a different sport to try and come up with a comp. Um, and so I think that's the kind of the, the challenge for them moving forward is like, can they execute that trade and can they find a partner on the other end who's willing to give up the sort of prospect value that could actually match Soto? Just to, to just to play devil's advocate, why, in fact, would the Nationals, given who this guy is, all right, let's be very clear about this. You know this, obviously, but we're talking about a guy who's 23, who's already yeah. a World Series champion, a two-time All-Star, a two-time Silver Slugger Award winner, a batting champ, a home run derby champ. I mean, a generational talent. Just to play devil's advocate, why would the Nationals not give this guy a blank check and then build their franchise around him? I mean, it's, uh, I'm trying to write a column tomorrow, I guess, basically explaining the problems of it, right? Because trading him seems crazy. He's so good. And you're right, he's 23, all the things you just said. But there's a couple of complications. One, the ownership situation in D.C. is unsettled. Right. The team is up for sale. Um, they, have, uh, you know, they haven't found a buyer yet. And Soto's agent, Scott Boris, made very clear this week that you know, Soto was not interested in signing an extension until he um, until he knows and the new ownership and he understands their vision and even then a blank check might not get it done because look if he gets to free agency in a couple years there's going to be 29 other teams out there who are available to him and I would say probably 10 of those are willing to give him a blank check maybe more maybe less who knows it will depend on how cheap the owners decide to be that winner but there will be lots of teams willing to cut him a blank check right and you have to if you're Soto you have to ask why would I strap myself to this franchise, which has not demonstrated the ability, you know, to build around me in the past couple of years. Do I want to be like Mike Trout? Do I want to be the best player in baseball and sitting at home every October? No, absolutely not. It's, <laughs> it's a valid point. Andy McCullough joining me. Andy, before you go, the trade deadline's coming up. Obviously, that's a key storyline right there. But another aspect to potential trades this year is the fact that some players have chosen not to be vaccinated, which means they're not going to be able to play on the road in games against Toronto. Given that the Yankees, the Red Sox, and Blue Jays are teams that could be involved in making trades, how big of a factor do you expect this to be? 
it's a great question. I mean, I think you hear it both ways. You hear from some teams who, I mean, if you think about it logically, right, if you're the New York Yankees and you are looking for a left-handed bat who can improve your lineup, someone like Andrew Benintendi, who's on the Royals, would make a ton of sense. Um, the complication, though, is like if you're the Yankees and you're going to be giving up assets for a player like that, what is the value of him knowing that if you play the Blue Jays in the postseason, if he continues to uh, remain unvaccinated as he has decided, you know, you won't have him. So that just hurts his value. It doesn't make them like untouchable. It just changes the amount of prospect capital that you're willing to give up. And so it makes it, you know, it sort of limits their markets in some ways. So other teams, um, you know, who maybe play in the National League uh, or, you know, just have less threats or less potential of going to Toronto, you know, in the last few months of the season, they might be more inclined. So it doesn't make it so that those guys are like untouchable per se, but it just limits their value. Do you have any sense, like, especially with Kansas City that had as many as 10 guys who were unvaccinated, do you have any sense, and I would imagine clubhouse to clubhouse, guy to guy, it's different, but how do you think that plays in a clubhouse where some are willing to and some are unwilling to, especially on a team that may have a chance to do some damage, generally? I think that what Whit Merrifield, the Royals' uh, longtime you know, sort of veteran guy had said this last week, I guess kind of summed it up. I and mean, he said, you know, hey, look, if I was on a team that had a chance to be in the postseason, I'd consider it. Uh, but, you know, until then, I'm going to continue making this personal decision or whatever. And I think it's not a coincidence that a team like the Royals that's in last place has an issue like this, whereas a team like the Yankees, who are running away with their division, or the Astros, who are running away with their division, um, haven't had issues, you know, with vaccination status when they go to Toronto. Um, it's not like I wrote this like last week, you know, like getting vaccinated, it does not make you uh, a better baseball player. Um, they are safe and effective and they do prevent uh, the spread of, you know, COVID-19. Um, but, but they do like demonstrate sort of a collective purpose and sort of a willingness to, this isn't a sacrifice, but a willingness to sacrifice for the collective goal of trying to win a title and, you know, um, helping your team do that. So that was a thing that we used to salute ball players for doing. I would like to go on record as saying I agree 100% with what you just said. I think that statement you just nailed dead on. He's a senior writer at The Athletic. And again, as I mentioned, he covered baseball at the LA Times, the Kansas City Star, and the Star Ledger, Andy McCullum, my guest. Andy, great to have you on. Always appreciate your conversation. Thanks so much. Anytime, Jim. Have a good one. You too, Andy. Well done. Good night now!